This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We want to move to our own expert here. Uh, Brian Granulati is the chief executive officer of Atlantic Health System. Joining us on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. Obviously, a state like here in New York that has been hit very hard. Uh, New Jersey's death rate actually uh, eclipsing, the daily death rate eclipsing New York's, I believe, for the first time today. So clearly a lot going on and a lot going on as we think about what happens next, even in terms of reopening the economy. Brian, really good to have you with Carol and myself. Thank you. So give us a sense of what you are seeing on the front lines there. What is it like and what's maybe new and different today or this week uh, versus in the preceding weeks? Sure. You know, you you had mentioned uh, the differences between uh, New York and New Jersey, and I got to tell you that uh, um, you got to follow the transit lines um, because what happened uh, in New York uh, followed the, the the transit down into New Jersey, and we have been really overwhelmed, as you described here. Uh, in New Jersey, particularly in northern New Jersey. So today uh, at our command center call, we had 544 patients with COVID in our hospitals, and um, about 35% of those patients are still on uh, ventilators. Mm. So we have a very sick patient population. But that's down from our peak, which was on April 9th, where we actually had uh, 834 patients. So we're down about 35% but it's still an enormous number of patients. You know, as we've gone through this process, Brian, I mean, what have we learned about being prepared next time, you know, and what we need to Mm -hmm. do in terms of really shoring up our health system and access for everyone? You know, there's a there's a famous statement. uh, It's about the economy. Um, Well, it's about the testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, our major lesson here is testing was a problem at the beginning testing uh, continues to be a problem today. And if we don't get this testing right uh, as we go into recovery, we're going to have a rebound effect and we're going to be back in the soup again. And we have to be very, very careful about that. The second thing that we've learned is that just-in-time delivery doesn't work in a pandemic. And our supply chain is really broken right now. Um, uh, We went through periods of enormous panic, making sure that we had the right kind of protective equipment for our team members to keep them healthy and safe. Uh, Ventilators were a big issue over a period of time. I can tell you just uh, a weekend we spent uh, scanning the nation for ventilators and, and being able to have many of our colleagues in different parts of the country support those. And it's the same thing with medications, uh, particularly those medications that support people on ventilators. So what we've learned is we've really got to fix this uh, supply chain. Uh, we've got to have more control over it because, you know, COVID is not going to go away until we have a vaccine. And that could be a year and a half or two years away. So we have just threaded the needle here in uh, New Jersey. The governor has been a a fantastic ally and advocate uh, for us, uh, particularly with the federal government and the stockpiles. 
but uh, we've learned a lot, and we got to make sure that uh, we continue to use the tools that we have, the predominant one being social distancing right now. So, Brian, I want to talk a little bit more about testing, if we could, because I feel like we want to go a level down and, and understand both testing for the disease and also the serological, the, the antibody testing. What do we know now, and what is important for our listeners to know in terms of what they should be doing, what they should expect, especially, you know, in and around your hospital system over the coming weeks? So the frustration that we've had with the diagnostic test, in other words, do you have COVID yeah. or not, is we needed to get that right at the point of care so there wouldn't be delays in uh, providing a definitive diagnosis. Because many patients come into the healthcare system uh, and they, they don't need to be hospitalized, about 80%. The 20%, uh, so, so when they go back, they need to know if they have a diagnosis or not so they know how, whether to self-quarantine. That diagnosis wasn't coming back for three or four days, and that was a big problem. So 20% of the patients that go into the hospital, we have to treat everybody as COVID positive until we have a definitive diagnosis. And in that instance, uh, about 45% of the patients that would go into the hospital and be tested um, would be under, uh, we wouldn't have a test result on them. So we were burning through all that scarce protective equipment because we had to treat everybody the same. So again, we have to have a point of care test on that. And then going forward, as we open up um, healthcare and start doing some of the care that's been pent up, and you've seen articles written recently about that, um, where people are just staying home instead of engaging in the health system, which they need to do, we're gonna need to provide that test at that preoperative time or pre-procedure time in order to make sure that we know those patients do not have COVID. So the diagnostic tests are going to have to be at the spot you're doing the care, and they need to be able to be determined right away. And when you say point of care, I just want to make sure that I understand, when you say point of care, that that could also include a pharmacy or someplace like that, right? Or am I misunderstanding? Well, if you're coming in for a diagnostic test or if you're coming in for a surgery, it would be in a facility like that uh, where you do your preoperative testing. Um, the second piece that you talked about, antibody testing, yeah. that's going to be important as it provides some clarification on whether or not you have had the disease uh, previously. Now, over the last week, you've seen um, two things happen in that space which are concerning. One is that we are getting uh, an incredible variation of results on the different tests that are being done, the types of tests that are being done. And it's really caused uh, some pause and some concern, uh, but but clearly we've got to run that down because what we don't want to do is give somebody an impression that they have built up the immunities. And then the second piece that's been of concern was the was the feedback we got from the World Health Organization over the weekend that perhaps uh, uh, having those antibodies does not necessarily protect you again uh, from getting uh, this virus. I think more work needs to be done in that space because the consequence of thinking you're bulletproof on this and you're not going to get it again uh, uh, is a problem. So, okay, I don't want to get all dystopian on everybody, but Brian, describe to me then what our world is like going forward. Is it we all just have to get used to a lot more testing, wearing masks, and potentially, I mean, you got you oversee 
a massive hospital system, seven hospitals in New Jersey, I think roughly 17,000 members, um, almost 5,000 physicians, 11 counties, you know, 5 million people, you know, have access to your system. Is it a case that, you know, how we go about getting procedures, it's going to be very different and we have to just get used to it. That's going to become the new norm. And we also will have health facilities that are separated into virus where people have the virus and those places that do not. Yeah. The first the first thing I want to say is that our hospitals are safe. Um, uh, I would I would argue our hospitals are uh, very safe compared to some of the other things we engage in um, uh, in our communities as we um, seek our activities of daily living. Um, so we're, we're safe to begin with. But as we think about needing to continue to care for this virus, um, we will, as our volumes go down in our hospitals, these patients will be contained in, in very specific areas where they won't um, be interacting with other patients. The team members that will care for them will care for those patients and not uh, care for other patients during uh, their shifts. And we need to make sure that um, we have uh, safe pathways uh, through our organizations so that uh, we don't have uh, people intersecting uh, inadvertently. And all those steps are being put in place literally as we speak. We also um, have, uh, when we do turn a unit over, and have it become a non-COVID unit, we do a terminal cleaning in there and make sure that uh, everything is safe. So, so patients shouldn't be safe or shouldn't be uh, scared and there are safe. The thing that we need to think about though to your question is this will be a period of wearing masks. This will be a period of maintaining social distance. This will be a period where you can't bring your entire family in on your office visit. Um, uh, those are the kinds of things that we're doing. We're going to continue to really use telehealth in a big way, um, but we're also in the process of opening our, our offices. Uh, you mentioned we have a lot of physician practices, and we're doing that also. And so I, I guess just to, to drill down at a further level, how long does the sort of era of social distance and masking and all of that last in your estimation, Brian? Is it till we have a vaccine, or is what do we need to see in order for you know life to even optically look something like close to normal, yeah. you know, in a perfect world, that's the answer. It's a vaccine, mm. but the but the reality is that that's going to take a while. So we've got to continue to pursue a couple of things. One is we've got to pursue effective treatments for this disease, because that will go a long way in itself to taking the scare out of this. Um, the second thing that we've got to work on is just continuing to educate the public about the importance of washing your hands and using yeah. a lot of common sense, you know, the kinds of things that you, you learned when you were a kid, um, and uh, make sure that we're adhering to those things. But we also are going to be in a position where our lives are going to be a lot different. You know, I think about restaurants, you know, um, paper, disposable menus. Um, instead of something that seats 100, it'll seat 50. And those all have huge uh, uh, impacts on uh, those various um, industries. But we uh, will be in a different place. But the key thing, again, just to go back to it, is we've got to, we've got to be able to 
have the testing available so right. that when we do get an outbreak, right. we are on that and doing the tracing we need to do. And that is uh, kind of the blocking and tackling right. of a public health system. Brian, just, just got about 30 seconds here. Are you bracing your team and preparing your team, though, potentially for another second wave here? And just got to be quick. Yes, we are. We are absolutely preparing for that wave, and we will pray that it doesn't happen. But we will be there, as we always are, to serve our communities safely, and that's really what we're all about. All right. Thank well, you so much. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Brian Granulati, a really thoughtful conversation, a realistic conversation about where we are on the medical front uh, as it comes to the health system. Carol, he is the CEO of Atlantic Health System, joining us on the phone from Morristown in your great state of New Jersey. In my great state of New Jersey. And just understanding a little bit more of what life is like on the other side. And I think, you know, the more information we know, the more secure we will feel about kind of re-entering. Um, and so it was really great to get some time with him. All right, coming up, we're going to check in uh, on uh, an interesting story that's in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. And it all has to do with that active-passive management kind of added again. I, I got to say, I'm just not sure how this is going to go today. It's just it's just one of those days. It's one of those lemon, it's Tuesday. Totally. And we're going with it as much as we can. Joel Weber uh, is joining us as he does most days at this time. He, of course, is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, as is Justina Lee, markets and quant reporter, quants reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. And Joel, I feel like... This is almost like a little throwback to your time as editor of Bloomberg Markets. Like I, I, I sort of, I'm digging this. I'm digging it. What so, tell us, tell us about this story. So uh, there was a, a kind of a Bloomberg News call, regular call, about a week ago, and uh, Justina kind of piped in with this idea that she was kind of noodling. And as she was describing it, I was just like, wow, this sounds so perfect for Bloomberg Markets. <laughs> I want it for Bloomberg Business, <laughs> and I want it for Bloomberg Business Week. Um, and it's really about small versus big companies, which is one that I think, you know, we're, we're going to obviously spend a couple minutes talking about here. It's also going to be, I think, a theme that will resonate um, for the, the coming year for investors in particular, um, if not years. And it really what really caught my ear, though, was the word quants. Um, so, just, you know, you want to figure out how, how to make sense of this for, for us? Yeah, sure. Because essentially what quantitative investors do is that, you know, they don't rely on human judgment. They use their computer models to try to find a couple of trading signals that they then apply across thousands of securities. And so I, I initially got this idea talking to a quant fund. And what they were telling me is that the dominance of all these mega cap stocks, you know, like Netflix or Facebook, was really not good for their kind of strategies because, they're essentially underweight mega caps, given that they're so diversified. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of intersection of this nerdy realm of quants and also a phenomenon that I'm sure all of us are noticing in the market. So what does it tell us about kind of what what they're seeing? And because it's, it's interesting, you know, Justina, because we talk so much about active versus passive, right? Uh, and we know the passive play has been, you know, done so well for so long coming off of the financial crisis and until recently. Um, kind of what did you take away from kind of doing this story and about that argument and that debate that's been going on? Right. I mean, essentially, one trend that has been making it even harder for the active stock pickers is that, you know, since the crisis, we have seen big companies get even bigger. 
Now, a lot of people think this is, you know, a structural trend in the sense that a lot of these tech companies are taking advantage of essentially a winner-takes-all economy. Because as an active stock picker, you want to be different from the benchmark. So you want to feel like you have your own original ideas. So a lot of the time, you're naturally underweight large caps. But, you know, when the big gets bigger, that's not an advantage for active stock pickers. And we've kind of seen that, you know, ripple through the asset management industry with a lot of acquisitions and with even more people turning to ETFs each year. So, so Justine, what, what about right of late? Just, you know, the past few months have been so crazy. And, you know, in theory, I guess maybe, you know, a quantitative approach could take out that the emotional effect. Um, what, what's been happening with quants of late? Right. I mean, obviously, I'm generalizing a little, but this year hasn't been great for quants either. And part of the reason is that, you know, they tend to have more exposure to small caps, which have been underperforming. They also have more exposure to value stocks typically, which, as we know, have also suffered even more than growth stocks. And so it hasn't been a great year for quants either, but they're always saying, you know, in every market, when valuations are so stretched between the winners and losers, there could be a snapback. And it's interesting because I think these past couple of days, we've seen a little bit of that, like small caps coming back a little. It's definitely far too early to say this is a trend. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. I mean, I guess, guys, to, to think about who – the winners and losers are at least so far in this. And I feel like we're going to get a little bit of a picture of this this week, Carol, when all the tech, tech companies mm-hmm. are, are starting to perform. And, and Joel, it, it does take me back to some extent. And, and this uh, this company is mentioned in the lead of Justina's story. It takes me back to Zoom, which was the, the subject of a great uh, cover story in the magazine a couple of weeks ago. I mean, sort of discerning the winners and losers here, even from uh, – beyond the the quant perspective but just from a, a stock and a business perspective is it feels even trickier right now yeah and especially as, as you know if if we think about the market share the um an, sort of a situation like this pandemic kind of creates for like an amazon where you can yeah. just see like how a big company could really really thrive here while so many small ones get hurt but now that said like you know i i recorded a podcast earlier with eric Valtunis and one of the things that um, he was kind of thinking about on the ETF side is just like, you know, small companies have been so beaten down and he just kind of has a theory that like you can only beat these things down so far, like over the long term, we might actually see some of these um, the smaller companies and even the small val- small company value ones really outperform over the next three to five years. So from a long term play, there might be something to that. Just, you know, like any any reporting on that and um, from from you? Right, exactly. I mean, for my story, I spoke to the head of quantitative strategies and Northern Trust Asset. His name is Michael Hunstead. And what he told me is that the size factor, which is, you know, betting on small caps, it's not dead. It's just that it's an incredibly long cycle. I think it's around eight years in his research, meaning that you could be underperforming for eight years. But if you stick it out over the long term, it actually still works out. Of course, the problem for most people, especially if you're a fund manager and that needs to get paid, is that most people don't have that kind of patience. But if you do, um, you know, the academic research indicates that exposure to small caps should still outperform over the long run. I got to say, this is the kind of story that just, you know, Joel, it just makes the market even more interesting as we try to figure out kind of what happens next. 
yeah, I mean, it's like to me, it's like that great buy and hold lesson. Like if you mm-hmm. if you can seriously like buy and hold it, it right. might be might be worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. It's a great story on the Bloomberg, one of the most read. Not surprisingly, it's in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. So find it online or pick up the magazine when it's out later this week. Justina Lee joining us from London. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from Brooklyn. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Just got about 15 minutes left in today's trading day. Carl Master along with Jason Kelly. Back with us is Alan Zafran. He is founding partner and co-CEO at IEQ Capital, joining us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, good to have you here with us. How's it all going? Well, I'll tell you what, it's beautiful weather out here. Home sheltering isn't bad. We've got 80-degree weather and sunshine, so it isn't all bad in California. Are people still sheltering, though, with that kind of weather? They are. And if you're listening to Mayor uh, London Breed in San Francisco and you're in the six counties around surrounding San Francisco, you're sheltering at least through the end of May. Mm-hmm. So California has a, um, you know, a tighter lockdown possibly than other parts of the country. And we'll see in the long run whether that was prudent or not, both from a health as well as an economic perspective. But the rules are the rules. And that's the way we are in California and northern California currently. And so what do you make of it? I mean, as a longtime businessman, you know, someone who's watching both the markets, but obviously has watched the, the rise of Silicon Valley and, and just the economic boom that you've seen there in Northern California. Obviously, it's a balance, uh, Alan, but, but I do I, – I wonder what you make of it. Uh, I make of it it's, – it's fraught with challenges. Uh, clearly, it's a negative economically. Clearly, it's a positive from a healthcare perspective. Um, the reality is we probably were not built to handle a massive amount of emergency uh, cases heading into hospitals. We would have been overwhelmed. Um, it's easier to look in retrospect and think we should have acted sooner. We didn't. Yeah. In the absence of doing that, we had to take some action steps. The question will obviously be, was the cure worse than the disease? Not entirely sure. It's very clear that there's been significant economic damage that's going to last years, not weeks, not months years. And so that's the the sad part of this is you're going to see a tremendous amount of economic damage. And the worst part of this, Jason and Carol, the inequity between the wealthy and those that don't have has only been exacerbated by this crisis. Let's get back to Alan Zafran, founding partner, co-CEO over at IEQ Capital on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, what do you what do you think so far of um, we could debate a lot about how long it took and, you know, whether the, you know, the shutdown will hurt us more in the long term. Um, there's lots to be said, uh, lots of criticism about what we did wrong, and there are things certainly that folks have uh, done right. Um, but I do wonder about the aid that's coming because that's really important, and that's the kind of forward-looking story about how we get through this and how do we look on the other side of the virus. So far, so good? Um, so far, so good. But if you think of it this way, uh, aid can only do so much. It's almost like there's four things that have to get done because you really have a medical crisis. So you can 
you can lower rates to zero like the Fed did, and that helps. That doesn't solve a virus problem. You can have the federal government throw money at individuals who are unemployed. That doesn't stop a virus problem. So ultimately, it's helpful, fills the hole from some of the unemployment gaps and lack of economic activity when 54% of small businesses are shut down in America. But the reality is until we get a solution for the problem, you're still going to end up in a world of volatility and uncertainty. And until someone has a clear-cut vaccine with it being widely distributable, it's a fool's errand to think that the volatility has suddenly gone away. Don't be fooled by the last week. We're not out of the water yet. It's still going to be tough. Right. And and that's clearly true, Alan, for anyone who's looking at this with a, a clear eye. And yet... I take a look at uh, the – actually, I want to bring you one headline related to your state. California reporting 1,576 new COVID cases, 54 deaths uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, I believe that's a, a tick up uh, maybe from yesterday. So we'll uh, bring you more details on that. That, of course, coming uh, from California Governor Gavin Newsom. He's giving his daily update over the last hour or so. What I was going to say, Alan, is – In terms of valuations, and we've been talking about this over the last couple of days, especially because it's such a big tech week, uh, you've got the NASDAQ that I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal right now, is down less than 4% for the entire year. So things aren't necessarily cheap right now. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I I can't tell you how many questions the last week I've had about, I can't believe, how come this market's going up? Um, The indexes are hiding the weakness. Uh, The NASDAQ is reasonably flat for the year. Um, the S&P is down, you know, with 10% for the year, but small caps are down 25%. Yeah. It's because defense is what used to be high beta. It's no longer beta. Large cap growth, businesses that aren't as reliant on basic economic activity, you don't need people visiting you. They're low-contact sports, so to speak. Those are the businesses that have been working in this economy and probably will continue to in a low-growth environment. So the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are, in a way – hiding the broader Main Street economic weakness, and that is where the money is rotating. And until there's greater semblance of a reflationary economy, which could be several years away, large-cap, U.S.-centric, large-cap growth seems to be the place where there's more steady growth and all things equal, ironically, it's a safer place to put your equity cap. Right, and the companies that we can probably bank on to get through all of this, ultimately, on the other side of it. Are you putting, would you suggest, Alan, that still it's a time to kind of pick up um, some names, certainly in the equity universe. Um, there are some opportunities out there. Or do you feel like those easy gains, the bounces off the low, that's already been been done? Yeah, I think the trains left the station on the easy gains. Um, mm-hmm. It always makes sense if you're a long-term investor to be dollar-cost averaging. However, it's, it's a world of low growth. You want to stick with franchises, strong balance sheets, and the ability to grow earnings regardless of a very slow economic environment. So don't get caught in a value trap. Just because there's a high dividend doesn't mean it's going to stay at a high dividend, nor does it mean that business is going to be able to generate the cash flows to pay that dividend. Focus on quality, quality, quality right now. Make sure you know the franchises and sectors you're buying into. There's a reason healthcare and tech are the best performing sectors here because that's where the secular yeah. growth is now and going forward. I feel like that's, I was just going to say, I feel like that's going to be our new world order. Healthcare and tech? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, secular yeah. growth. Um, so, Alan, talk to us about real estate. I feel like this is going to be one of the big questions that we are talking about for some time to come, not just from an investment perspective, but from the perspective of 
how do we consume real estate? How do we use it both residentially and commercially? We had Kent Swig on our program uh, last week. He obviously has invested heavily, especially on the coast in, in San Francisco near you and in New York City here near us. We also have these big questions around are big companies going to take less real estate, more real estate? What does social distancing look like? What does the new workplace uh, look like? And I do wonder, especially given your history of advising a number of you know wealthy families over the years, real estate has always been a pretty comfortable place for folks, right? Yeah, it really has because it's got you know, a very tax-efficient mechanism to deliver income. And I think it's very clear um, there have been some secular changes, and the secular changes are, first and foremost, there is going to be a shift in work behavior going forward. It's clear not everybody's going to jump back to the office as frequently. On the one hand, I kind of like that because there'll be less traffic driving to and from the office. On the other <laughs> hand, if I'm an owner of an office building, um, I think my buyers now, my renters, are going to have more buying power. I think there's going to be less demand for office, so there's definitely going to be some valuation discount probably other mm. than an exceptionally – high-quality office in major metropolitan cities. Secondarily, uh, I would argue that industrial properties, core industrial properties, have actually gone up in value. The notion of delivering more goods and services to more consumers going forward, if you're a warehouse provider for a Target, Walmart, you know, Amazon, it's going to be a good thing. So there's winners and losers. I think the place that's really complicated, not retail, it's pretty clear that it's an over-retailed environment. It'll have to refigure it out, but it's apartments, which has traditionally been a very safe environment. You know, if we're in a world where renters are given a free pass to pay rent, possibly for very good reason, I don't know if that makes the landlords feel very good, and I don't know who's culpable on the back end. And so there is going to be, at least in the short run, some discount devaluations on basic conventional apartment buildings because what was once perceived to be an exceptionally low-risk income stream you know, is arguably a little more risk. It depends on what kind of apartment property and what location. All right. We're going to leave it there. Great to catch up with you. Thanks for being patient with us as we jumped around. We really appreciate it. Alan Zaffron, founding partner, co-CEO of IEQ Capital, on the phone from Northern California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.